Well, good morning again. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. It's a joy to see you this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the second letter to the Corinthians. You'll find it halfway through the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and we'll be taking a look at chapter 4, verses 8 through 11 today. Starting next week, we'll begin a series in the book of Psalms. So we hope to see you next Friday. As you're turning there, I do want to remind our members an announcement that Richard gave in the beginning of the service, that we have a member meeting today at 5 p.m. We'll be at St. Mary's School, and it'll be the one in Muhaishna. So you'll see a map in the bulletin that'll help you get there. We have a lot of important things. We'll take a group picture. We'll discuss deacon nominations, bring in new members, say goodbye to a couple of elders and other members going with our latest church plants. We'll consider other important matters in the life of our church. That's at 5 p.m. And again, of major importance, we will be having dinner together, but it is a dessert potluck. So don't forget that. If you're a member, bring a favorite dessert to share, and we'll have a good time in fellowship together. Well, as we approach God's word, let's pray. Father, many of us come to you in need of encouragement today. Maybe others of us think we have it all together and our hearts are cold. Warm us up by the gospel today. Teach us to not only follow you, but to do it with delight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Kintsuji is an ancient art form in Japan. It literally means golden patchwork, which is what this art is really all about. The artist forms things like cups, plates, and bowls by taking broken pieces of pottery and putting back together original items. So rather than hiding the flaws of the pottery, these cracks are actually sealed with gold or another precious metal. And those cracks, therefore, are highlighted, even exalted. Brokenness is not hidden. It's showcased for all to see. The reason why Kintsuji is found in museums throughout the world is because this broken art is esteemed, it's given more value, and is deemed more beautiful than items that had never been broken before. This is counterintuitive for us, isn't it? It's not normal to highlight or showcase the weak or the broken. Our societies value perfection and strength. We admire people for being strong when they're mourning a loss. We're proud for friends for standing tall in the face of adversity. We put images of the most talented, the most gifted athletes on the cover of magazines. Now, weakness is looked down upon. Weakness is, is seen as subpar, even unnatural. Brokenness and suffering is not something to be exalted. It's something to be rejected. People hide their weaknesses, cover up their suffering, and tragically, some people even abort or reject babies with physical abnormalities. But praise God, his ways are not like our ways. His ways are more like the art of kinsuji than we think. In his perfect plan, he's chosen to use pain and suffering, brokenness and trials for his purposes. 
So in our passage today, the Apostle Paul shares with the Corinthians about an experience of weakness and trial. And if you're taking notes, just, I just have one main point today, and here it is. God is accomplishing in our suffering more than we can see right now. God, our sovereign and all-powerful God of this universe, is accomplishing more in our suffering than you and I can see right now. We'll see that as we walk through our passage. The Apostle Paul is going through great pain. And Dexter just read those verses for us. He is going through a tremendous trial. I was laughing with Pastor Jason Barris this past week regarding what Paul says in verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. On the one hand, he doesn't want the Corinthians to be unaware of his suffering, but then he doesn't actually tell us what this affliction he's facing is. I mean, it's a bit strange. I want you to know, but I'm not going to tell you. I don't want you to be unaware, but tricked you. I'm not telling. There's an absence of details in these verses. What's the trial? We don't know. We have no idea. Some speculate it was the riot or an imprisonment in Ephesus. Others say it was a health issue. Some say it was depression. Maybe it was a little bit of of each of those. Now, at this point, the Apostle Paul has already gone through tremendous suffering. Remember, this is 2 Corinthians. He had already written the first letter, and he gives us a CV of his previous suffering in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to the litany of trials he had faced before. Our passage. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false teachers. That's a lot of danger, isn't it? And he goes on, there's more. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me and all the anxiety for the churches. I mean, all that Paul had already gone through. That's not what he's talking about here. That was his CV of suffering. He had gone through trial after trial after trial. But now, Paul goes through some kind of affliction that he says there that we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This was even worse than what he had faced before. He thought he was going to die. Now, how did it come about? How long did it last? How many people did it affect? We don't know. Paul says we were burdened. Who were these others with him? We don't know that either. Where did it occur? We do know that answer, or at least the vicinity of where it happened. It took place in the province of Asia somewhere. And it seems to have occurred between the writing of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Otherwise, you would have expected Paul to have made mention in his first letter to the Corinthians of some near-death experience. Whatever it was, it had a profound effect on Paul's life. Verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
picture of a ship like we saw in the book of Jonah a couple months ago. A ship just sinking and no matter what the sailors do, throwing out the water, throwing objects overboard, nothing seems to help and this, the ship is just sinking to its death. For Paul and for his companions, this felt like the end. This is the end of the road for them. But this suffering wasn't without reason. God was accomplishing in Paul's suffering more than he could see in that moment. Now on the other side of the trial, Paul understood what God was doing. Verse 9 again. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but, but, and here's the reason, it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Paul and his friends felt that they were right up against the precipice of death, but it wasn't meaningless. The suffering wasn't without meaning and without reason. See, the Apostle Paul is acknowledging that he needed to learn a lesson. You would think that he would have understood this. He was an apostle. He had seen the risen Christ. God had changed his heart. He had watched God perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet even Paul, even the apostle Paul, was susceptible to relying on himself. We never stop learning, do we? We never fully arrive at maturity. Hurting friend, might God be teaching you something in your trials? Could he be bringing you through the gates of suffering so that you would rely on him? Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a tiny thread of hope. Physical ailments numb your soul. You've recently lost a loved one. You've been falsely accused at your job for something that you haven't done. Maybe you've even been fired for someone else's mistake. You're suffering persecution at work for sharing your faith. I know some of you are marginalized in your family or your community because you've placed your faith in Jesus. Your neighbors or even your landlord mock you. Debt is burdening you. Some of you are suffering because you're actually fighting sin. That's a a good thing, but you're fighting this, this sin that so easily entangles you. And it's hard. It's a difficult battle. For others, it's a family struggle. Maybe infertility, loneliness, difficulty with the children you do have, aging parents, missing family. All of us are away from our family and we all... We all miss them. Friends, are you hurting? Don't hide it. Paul wasn't pretending to be strong. Just take some time later on today to read through 2 Corinthians. Paul wasn't hiding. He wasn't putting on a a mask, pretending that he had it all together, or that he was strong. No, Paul was learning that his strength comes only from the Lord. Period. God was accomplishing in his suffering more than he could see right now. I'm always inspired when I hear uh, about theologian J.I. Packer's accident as a child. When he was seven years old, he was struck by a vehicle on the road that left him with an actual hole in his head and an indention in his skull that he would have for the rest of his life. As a young child, Packer began to grasp God's work through trials. He writes, 
My own recognition that the Christian way of life and service is a walk of weakness, as human strength gives out and only divine strength can sustain and enable, may well be rooted in my youth. A solitary and rather somber child, I had to wear at school for 10 years a black aluminum patch covering a hole in my head, the result of a road accident, and hence I was unable to play outdoor games. During those years, I felt out of most of what mattered, which is, of course, one form of the feeling of weakness. Packer spent three weeks in the hospital and then another six months out of school just trying to heal enough so that he could actually go to school again. And when he did, he went with his big metal patch, already a loner. He secluded himself even more. He missed out on many of the things that other young children uh, were able to do. And so he was really excited on his 11th birthday. He was so sure that he would get that brand new bicycle that he had always wanted, that kids his age were getting for birthday and Christmas presents. And so on his 11th birthday, so thrilled, he headed downstairs anticipating this shiny new set of wheels. But see, his parents knew better. They knew that a fall from his bicycle could prove to be deadly for him. So instead, they bought him something they thought he might eventually enjoy. It was a typewriter. It's an old typewriter, but it was in good condition. I mean, you can imagine right now this young boy coming down his steps. Maybe you're in jump start. Maybe you're 11 years old. You can imagine coming downstairs from your bedroom, expecting, hoping, wanting to see this brand new shiny bicycle. And right there on the top of the table is an old typewriter. You can imagine your excitement turning into grief as you see it. But Packer gave it a chance, and soon the disappointment turned into delight as he began to type. That typewriter would later prove to be his most treasured possession. Even today, as a 90-year-old, J.I. Packer, who's written dozens of books over his lifetime, still has never used a computer, but sticks to a typewriter. Consider this for a moment. Because J.I. Packer was disabled and weak, he couldn't receive the bicycle that he so desperately wanted. And what has God done through this man over the years? Well, God has used him to be one of the most influential Christian theologians over the last century and beyond. At the time of his accident, it was actually thought that J.I. Packer had suffered tremendous brain damage. But instead, God used that injury so that Packer would use his brain in ways beyond what he or his parents or the doctors could ever comprehend. And rather than wallowing in self-pity, this young Packer began to trust the Lord. He began to rely on God in his weakness. Even with a dent in his head and a hole in his skull, he relied on God to use his weakness and suffering to glorify himself. This is what God does for Paul. You see it in these verses. Paul acknowledges it. It, It's awful. We were on the verge of death. But God was bringing Paul to a place of not relying on himself, but relying on the God who raises the dead. Oh, friends, don't you want to rely on a God who can raise the dead? I mean, when we think about that, it's foolish for us to rely on our own strength. It makes no sense. And yet, it is a temptation for all of us. It was a temptation for the Apostle Paul, which seems like a contradiction. He was an apostle. He certainly knew where his 
power came from. He had seen the risen Christ. Well, John Calvin, the reformer, has commented on this passage and said that Paul was simply no different than any other human being. All of us are tempted to place our confidence on our own powers rather than God. This is a truth we can't learn in the textbook, but God only seems to get our attention when, as Calvin says, we've been laid low by the crushing hand of God. Another writer puts it like this, the roots of human pride grow deep, like those of the acacia trees in the Serengeti desert. They are not so easily dislodged. A good dose of helplessness reveals to us that we can't do it on our own. Well, how do we know if we're being self-reliant? What are the signs that we're relying on ourselves? Well, here are a few examples. When we look to human solutions for human problems, you try to blame someone else for your troubles and make them fix it. Or you spend all your energy trying to fix them yourselves. You read Google and Wikipedia until late into the night for answers and for comfort. You try remedy after remedy and search for peace from other people rather than God. Or maybe you escape to things like materialism to numb your soul, retail therapy, food therapy. You eat and eat. You go on too many adventures. You yearn for someone else's life. You're jealous or cynical. You look to alcohol to bring you peace. You fill your social calendar and you get so busy, you just want to distract yourself from reality. Or how about this one? Perhaps most convicting, most fundamentally, how do we fail to rely on God? Well, we simply fail to spend time with him. We don't pray. We don't read the Bible. We don't practice spiritual disciplines. We think that on our own, we can get up in the morning, we can go about our day, we can go about our work, go about raising our family, go about our hobbies, go about everything without God. In the end, we live our days at times like functional atheists, relying on our own strength. There's so many places we're tempted to go to strength, go for strength, but we must rely on God. It's a paradigm shift. Those who rely on God might appear to be weak and even to be failures, but God delights in delivering the weak who depend on him. It's backwards. Those who appear to be weak and rely on God are actually strong because they have the strength that comes from the Almighty God who can raise the dead. This is seen most clearly in the gospel, in this good news that we hold out every week. God's power being made perfect in weakness is most perfectly displayed in the cross. In Revelation, when John catches a glimpse of the heavenly glory and sees Jesus risen from the dead, those marks on his hands and feet were magnificently visible. Jesus wasn't hiding them. Jesus will never hide them. John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, who was seated on the throne. Oh, friends, Jesus was and is the sacrificial lamb slain for our sins. Those marks on his body were not a deformity. Those marks on his body were not an accident. Those marks on his body were not the result of a defeat. No, they are the most beautiful scars in all of history. That Jesus' weak and scarred body is our only hope and salvation. 
Friends, don't be fooled into living a life of independence, thinking that on your own you can earn your way or get your way to God. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're okay, that you're strong. So, friend, the Apostle Paul is very clear in this text that you and I are not strong. That, in fact, you and I are weak. Because the truth is, all of us have sinned. Even the strongest, most gifted, most godly person you know has transgressed against the holy God of the universe. None of us are exempt from the weakness of sin. None of us are strong enough to erase sin. There's no number of good works that you and I can do that can wash away the fact that we were born into sin and we continue on into sin each day. The only way to be redeemed is if God takes action. And thankfully, he did. And he did it through weakness. And he did it through suffering. Jesus, God in the flesh, left heaven. He came to the fallen earth. He lived a perfect life. And then he became the payment for our sin in weakness by dying on the cross. And then to display the power of God, on the third day, he was risen from the dead, showing that our sins had been defeated. Well, friend, if you don't follow Christ, repent of your sin. Trust in him today. Well, the only way to be saved is to admit that you're weak and that you need Jesus. As Christians, it's our privilege to point to Jesus through our scars. Our broken bodies and trials can be a beautiful picture of God's glorious redemption. Oh, Christian, God is accomplishing in your suffering more than you can see right now. Like the Japanese art of kintsugi, our rough edges and cracks are filled with gold to point to the greatness of God. The philosophy behind that art is not to build a new piece, but instead to understand its history and repair the old piece. It looks similar to the old form, but this time is more glorious. And that's exactly what God does for us through our trials. We can embrace God in our trials with faith that God is doing a work beyond our comprehension. The flaws aren't hidden. Our scars aren't something to run from or to hide from, but to exalt Christ as the one who is conforming us more and more into the image of himself. Paul points to that same reality as he closes the letter to two Corinthians. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power. Now listen to this. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And then he closes the book and he says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a complete paradigm shift from the way the world thinks. Here's Paul, content with weaknesses, content with hardships, content with persecutions, content with calamities, content, content, content for the sake of Christ in all things. Weakness that depends on God is true strength. That's what Paul is telling us here. And those weaknesses and those trials are going to continue. In verse 10 of our passage, Paul acknowledged that God delivered him, but that there would be future times that God would deliver him again and again. This wasn't the end. This wasn't one trial that God would deliver him from and life would be all peaceful now. What he's saying is there'll be more times, more trials, and God will have to intervene again. 
Well, friends, do you see how this is so different from the prosperity gospel teachers that we see today? These false preachers are everywhere saying that if you're a Christian and you have enough faith, I guarantee you, you will have wealth and health and wisdom. You'll have all that you want if you follow God and you have enough faith. If you have enough faith, you will get paid. But see, God never promises that in the scriptures, does he? Paul, the chief church planter, suffered greatly. God never promises a pain-free existence. In a fallen world, our reality will often be a painful one. You may have health, wealth, and wisdom. I hope you do. That's fine. Those, are, those aren't bad things. But it's not forever. In the same letter, Paul says, we're like jars of clay. Though will be dented and broken, cracked and, and scratched. And yet, there were many in Corinth, if you read through the letter, who would look at Paul's life and say, oh Paul, you, you can't really be faithful and your God can't really be helping you because look at your life. Your life is in shambles. You're weak, you're broken. You're sick, you're afflicted. They regarded his trials as an embarrassment to Christianity. Some question God's power because of Paul's weakness. And there may have been some of them saying, like the enemies to the psalmist in Psalm 42, where is your God, Paul? If your God is real, if your God is powerful, then you should be healthy, you should be happy, you should have all things. The prosperity teachers say, if you have enough faith, then life will, will be all right. The problem with that theology is that eventually, unless Jesus comes back soon, we will all suffer. And yet God will carry us through. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And look at this, Paul has confidence. He might face other trials, but God will deliver him. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God heals him. Again, Paul doesn't tell us how. The emphasis on this entire episode isn't on giving us details or distracting us from the facts. But the point is to give God thanks for all things and for us to hope in him. The focus is not on the affliction, but on the God who carries us through the affliction. So we don't speculate about Paul's circumstances because Paul has told us about his one great permanent circumstance of being content in Christ. But it's important for us to know that God's deliverances in this life are not complete. There's no way to sidestep the last enemy of death. There will be sorrow and suffering in a fallen world. Only in the resurrection of the dead is there perfect deliverance. So friends, what are we to do until that time? We're to rely on God. That's what Paul's saying. Well, how do we do that? Paul gives us away in verse 11. He charges the Corinthians and he charges us with these words. You, Corinthians, you, Redeemer Church of Dubai, help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul says, for your part, Corinthians, join us in prayer. Just as we studied last week, we see that God's deliverance is in some mysterious way intimately connected with the prayers of his people. Here's a way you can help, Corinthians. Pray for us. Paul's not soliciting their prayers for his benefit alone, as we see there. The comfort that Paul will get from their prayers will also overflow into the Corinthians' lives and all those witnessing their suffering as well. 
God is honored through their prayers, and that's Paul's greatest concern, that many, many will give thanks through God's deliverance of Paul and his fellow ministers through their prayers. Redeemer Church of Dubai, let us be men and women of prayer. It is the most powerful weapon to help those in need and to comfort ourselves in these times of trial. And yet we're often tempted to look to other things to bring us solace. In times of need, we're persuaded to distract ourselves with the television. Or maybe, for you, you get so distracted that you look to talk to every single friend or family member in sight and to talk about your problems with them, to calm your nervous heart. Or how about our phones? They're powerful things, but we often go to them for solace, scrolling through social media to see how many likes we received that day. Or we talk to Siri on our phone. I mean, it's a robot, a computer. But friends, think about this. When you pray, you're not talking to a computer. You're not talking to a robot. You're talking to the one true God of the universe. You're talking to the God who made you, the God who created you, the God who knows you, the God who listens to you as the priesthood of all believers. We have direct access, a direct line to the God who is sovereign, who holds the whole world in his hands, the one who rules, the one who reigns, the one who is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. We have access, direct access to speak to that God. When you pray, you talk to the one who can raise the dead. Friend, to become strong, we must first become weak. Nothing communicates to God and to the world that you're weak and that he is strong than stopping whatever you're doing to pray. This is why we pray so much in our services. This is why Pastor Benoit has initiated that our next 8 a.m. Redeemer class is on prayer. So we'll do a short devotional, but then we'll spend the rest of the time just praying. That's why we pray in our church staff meetings. It's why we spend a lot of time in our elder meetings in prayer. It's why we pray in our community groups. It's why we pray in our discipleship meetings. It's why we pray with one another on a regular basis. Now, friends, if you're hurting, why look to the creation to calm your heart when you, you can look to the creator to give you hope. Before the foundation of the world, God chose that he would use the prayers of his people to be the engine of his work in this world. So pray for your own growth and grace. Pray in your trials for God to be there with you. Pray when you're in despair knowing that God listens to you. And like Paul was asking the Corinthians to do, pray for your hurting friends. Praying for your hurting friends is the best thing you can do for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, True spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother even more than to a brother about Christ. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ, and that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. When you talk to a hurting friend on Friday morning, just stop the conversation right here in this room or in the foyer and pray for them. When you're on a phone conversation and someone's pouring out their heart to you and they're going through a difficult time in their lives, pray for them before you get off the phone, right there on the line. When you pray for someone during a devotional time, as you're reading your Bible or praying through the membership directory, send them a note. Let them know what you prayed for them. 
To be a Christian is to be dependent on prayer. To be a Christian is to be weak and to acknowledge your need for help. The Apostle Paul, the greatest church planter of his time, constantly struggled with pain and trials. He was a weak man. Earlier I read from the passage that says that he had some kind of thorn in his flesh that he often asked God to spare, but all to no avail. On the one hand, we might wonder all that Paul could have accomplished if he had never had that thorn. But the reality is everything Paul accomplished was not in spite of his thorn, but through his thorn. The Gospels preached churches were planted not in spite of Paul's weakness, but through his weakness. Redeemer Church of Dubai, let's boast gladly in our weaknesses so that God's power might be manifest through us, knowing that when we are weak, that is when we are strong. We can do this by faith because we know that God is accomplishing more in our suffering than we can see right now. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, many of us can relate to the Apostle Paul. We're at the end of ourselves. Our trials are too much to bear on our own. So, Father, help us to rely on you. Help us to trust in you and use our suffering to draw us nearer to you. Don't waste it. Use it to cause us to more fully depend on you, that we would go to you for all things, that we would understand that weakness is the way so that you get all the glory. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.